Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message about Jesus giving sight to a man who was blind from birth. So go ahead and open up your Bible or your Bible app to John 9, 1-41, and then get ready to turn to John 10, 1-21. That way you can follow along with the entirety of the message. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. We thank you so much for listening. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you today. Okay, thank you for spending part of your Memorial Day weekend with us. We are continuing our study of the life of Jesus. Books are still available for sale. And you know, if, if you're, you got in late after we started, just back up and reread the whole thing. Be good this summer to read it all again. Today's message is entitled Blindness. Take your message guide out of your program. And the theme verse that I've selected from this passage is found at John 9, 25. He answered, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Can you see? Not physically, Do you see spiritually? You say, well, I don't know. I'm confused about that. Well, during this service, ask God to show you whether you indeed can see or whether you're blind to spiritual truths. Now, we're dealing with reading 112 on page 135. Right there at the bottom. And we begin. I'm just going to use the first part, which is the part we're most familiar with, just as the background for the message today. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. So it was a congenital condition. How did they know? Who told them? That information is not given. It's not crucial. Did Jesus just know it innately? Did he know it divinely? Did the Spirit whisper it? Or did just everybody in town know it? Because this man had been blind and had been sitting on the corner by the temple begging for years. His disciples questioned him. Rabbi, the name of a religious teacher. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now perhaps this question is based on that familiar verse, Exodus 34, 7, that says that that the The sins of the father are punished in the children to the third and fourth generation. Perhaps they were bringing that awareness to this situation. But it's interesting, isn't it, that rather than seeing a man in need of compassion, they saw a theological question to discuss. These disciples in their question show that they assume, like most Jews of the day, that sin including even sin committed perhaps in the womb, was the primary, if not the exclusive, cause of all suffering. Now, most of us wouldn't say that we believe that today, but I sure do hear that ask a lot when people encounter tragic circumstances, either physical circumstances or environmental circumstances, and they start saying What did I do to deserve this? So even though we may know theologically that's not true, there's still something in us that's looking for something we did to cause it. Now, certainly some suffering does come as a direct consequence of specific sins. And children can suffer from the sins of parents. If you grew up in a household and your parents were engaged in some destructive habits, if they were abusive, if they were verbally cruel, if they practiced some forms of substance abuse, then you were wounded in a way that was damaging in your life, emotionally, but even sometimes even has a physical manifestation. And the effects of wounds are carried on from generation to generation. But these are not curses from God. And the law of Moses actually said that children are not punished for sins of their parents. 
It's true that in one sense, all suffering is from sin. Because there was no suffering. There was no disease before the fall. But after the fall, sin infected the world and we die of disease that afflicts our bodies. Jesus didn't deny the general connection between sin and suffering. But he did refute the idea that personal acts of sin are always the direct cause of disease and suffering. He says in verse 3, there on the next page, neither this man sinned nor his parents. Now, of course, they had committed some sin, but what he's saying is there is no sin committed by either that caused this blindness, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus didn't tell the source of the blindness. Instead, he changed their perspective on the situation. And he saw this suffering as an opportunity to show mercy and to glorify God. And let me say this from my experience. Rarely do explanations relieve suffering. You're asking, that, why do I have this illness? Why did this happen? Why? Even if you got an answer, it wouldn't relieve your suffering. But we learn from what Jesus is saying that our disabilities, whether they be physical, emotional, provide an opportunity for us to trust and even to praise God in the midst of our suffering. You don't have to raise your hand here, but are any of you suffering? Physically? Emotionally? Relationally? Can you see that situation, that difficulty, that hardship, that pain, that suffering as an opportunity to glorify God? Verse 4. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, Jesus is speaking specifically, though the disciples don't realize it, of that night when he would be arrested and then be crucified the next day. But then shortly after that, he would ascend to heaven. And so during that period, the disciples weren't working because they hadn't been empowered to work. Because that doesn't happen until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fills every one of them. And they're able then to do even greater works, as Jesus put it, than he had been able to perform while he was here. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus came to provide light to people who were trapped in darkness. After he said these things, he spit on the ground made some mud from saliva and spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. You know, it's interesting how many times he used spit to heal people, isn't it? He did it Mark 7, 33. Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about it. He spit on his fingers and stuck it on this man's tongue. Come up here, Daniel. I'll do that and we'll see if you can heal. Another time he spit on his hands and, and rubbed it in his man's eyes. But he didn't make mud either of those times. People, let me tell you, you if you read these um, commentaries, people love to spiritualize all kinds of stuff. And so they say, well, you see, God made Adam from the dust of the ground and Jesus is making mud to reform the eyes. What? We don't, I mean, we don't know why he used mud. I've, I've read before that they thought there was some medicinal quality from saliva and maybe because this man is, is about to be told, he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he has to walk a ways and just the mud will stick to his eyes while he's walking. Someone must have had to lead him. And the pool of Siloam has been recently discovered by archaeologists. You can Google it and see it. And then John tells us in parentheses, the word Siloam means sent. That name likely originated from water that was sent to the pool 
from through a tunnel that King Hezekiah built hundreds of years before when the city was being sieged and he built this tunnel from the Jihon Spring in the Kidron Valley so that people inside the city would have water. So that's likely why it's called Siloam, which means sent. The water was sent through the tunnel and it delivered the people. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. It's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus told him. Jesus could have just healed his eyes. You ever wonder, why did he put mud on the guy's eyes? And why did he tell him, go down there to the pool and wash your eyes? You wonder that? I think very often Jesus gives us instructions to obey. And we wonder why our relationships are a mess, why, why, why we're doing so poorly in so many areas of our lives, and yet we know what we've been told to do, and we just won't do it. We say, that's ridiculous, that won't help. I don't care what the Bible says, I'm not following that, I'm not going to do it that way. That doesn't make sense to me. Whereas I wonder how often simple, diligent obedience would heal many of the problems in our lives. I don't see this man offering any objections. You know why he didn't? Why do you think, Jamie? He wanted to see. He knew he had a need. And Jesus gave him some directions. And what did he do? He followed. How many of you right now have a problem in your life and you know that something you're doing is in defiance of what God's word tells you to do and you wonder why you're struggling? This man who obeyed Jesus' instruction was healed, but he was about to encounter some surprising responses to this miraculous healing. Let me bring it up to the current day. When we experience Jesus and when we change dramatically in our lives, we often encounter some surprising responses from people as well. And the reason is because receiving spiritual sight rouses resistance. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who sat begging? And some said, he's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. Now, these are people who were his neighbors, perhaps his friends, Certainly people, see this man, in the context, it appears that he's sitting near the temple, which would be a place that you would likely get some contributions because people were kind of thinking benevolently there. They want to be seen well, bless you, in God's eyes. And so he was sitting there. It was an opportune spot to plant himself. So people had been going by him for years because a blind man, even in our culture, has some, some limitations on his or her ability to make a living. But in this culture, there was almost no way to make a living blind. So he had to resort to begging to live. Now, these people who knew this blind man very well, were very familiar with him, were so surprised at the healing that they couldn't believe it was the same man who sat begging outside the temple. But here's what's behind it, I think. They couldn't accept the change. They found it easier to believe this is a case of mistaken identity than miraculous healing. And they asked skeptically, in verse 10. Then how were your eyes opened? 
And he explained to them what happened. He just described what this man did. He doesn't know how his eyes were, were healed medically, but he just described what happened. Do you remember when you encountered Jesus by faith? Do you remember when you were changed dramatically? Let me see some hands. Who knows that they were changed in a dramatic way? Some people will say the changed person isn't really you. I know who you are. You're the beggar. You're the addict. You're the angry person. You're the person who is up to no good ever. And you'll return to what you were. You ever heard that? You know, when I was practicing law in Columbus, Georgia, I announced to my firm, and then it spread in a fairly closed community. And this lawyer, who was an agnostic, which means a lazy atheist, <laughs> said to me, wasn't in my firm, he was in a firm that I did insurance defense work. He did the same kind of work in another firm. He was older than me by a decade or more. And he said, you'll be back. You'll be back. And I said, we'll see. That was 1984, so I haven't gone back yet. But see, here's what was going on. He couldn't understand that dramatic change in direction. It, I mean, I had a good job. I had, I had won five cases, trying cases. I had, I had a, a great future. It wasn't like I, I could never find a client. I couldn't have a job. I was about to get fired. He couldn't figure what I would do. Why, why would I sacrifice prestige, income, all of this to go to work? And I, it wasn't a, this is a big church, but this, the church I went to serve had a couple of hundred people. It didn't, it didn't make any sense. So it was, it was threatening. It was convicting. And it unsettles people when your behavior becomes unpredictable. Have you discovered that? They want to know what you're going to do, even if what you're going to do is something bad. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, he's just an addict. Oh, he's just an alcoholic. Oh, he's just irresponsible. Oh, you can't trust him for anything. They find comfort in knowing you're the beggar outside the temple and you ain't ever changing. And then something happens they cannot explain. You know, when I was a, I was born again as a senior in college. And that summer, a bunch of us, a bunch of my fraternity brothers and I were not going to go home. I would start law school the next fall. We were all going to stay in Statesboro, Georgia. And I got saved right before graduation time. And I told all of my friends, I'm, I'm a different guy. I'm not living the way I've lived. I'm not doing what I used to do. One of my friends said, don't change yet. We're living together this summer. <laughs> it was a horrible summer. It was a horrible summer because I was completely alone. Well, no, I was alone from friends. I had a companion in Christ. But it took me a while. I mean, I wasn't, I've told you all this story before, those that have been around a while, you know, about me knocking one of my fraternity brothers down. I punched him in the face. 
Well, he was pouring beer on my chicken I was grilling. I didn't knock him out cold, but when I knocked him down, he was drunk, but I wouldn't let him get up and walk. I made him crawl out of the yard. And I'm still that mean. Not quite, not quite that mean, but... The next resistance, well, let me say this. People don't want you changing. They almost find more comfort in criticizing you and denouncing you. You understand what I'm saying? And when you change in some revolutionary way, they can no longer control you, they can no longer predict you, and they don't understand what happened to you. Anybody in here know what I'm talking about? The next resistance came from those who should have embraced it enthusiastically as evidence that the Messiah has arrived. The religious leaders should have been cheering and excited. But they weren't. Verse 13. So these people brought to the Pharisees the man who used to be blind. And then it says, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. And I'm not reading every word of this, but again, he explained the process. The Pharisees reject the healing because they rejected the source. They didn't approve of the one who performed it, so they just tried to wipe it all out. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. The truth is, Jesus did keep the Sabbath. It was never wrong to do good on the Sabbath. It was the day of rest. You reflect on God, you worship God, But it was never wrong. See, they had added hundreds of extra rules to the Sabbath. And how you keep the law. You weren't allowed to to draw a bucket of water out of a well on the Sabbath. Because it was work. But you were allowed to tie the bucket on a rope with the bonnet strings from a headpiece a woman would wear. And then it wasn't work because it was just kind of getting dressed for the day. I've told y'all before from us going to, to Israel that there was always in every, um, in, in every hotel, there was an elevator that you didn't push any buttons in. It would stop at every floor. So you made a real mistake if you got on that elevator and you were on the sixth floor. Because pushing the button is defined as work. And it was those kinds of things. There were hundreds of rules like this. But Jesus said, Jesus never violated the the true heart of the Sabbath. But he violated the rules they created. Which made them righteous and everybody else unrighteous. Because the other ordinary people didn't even know all the rules. But some of the Pharisees were saying, but how can a sinful man perform these signs? And there was division among them. And again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? You, know, you see what they've done? They're not even asking now, can you see? Nobody held up an eye chart. They said, who do you think performed this miracle? The healing was less important to them than how they identified the healer. He's a prophet, he said. See, when Jesus changes you, when Jesus delivers you from sin and suffering, some people will be skeptical. And they're skeptical because they don't accept the Savior, they doubt Christianity, or they dispute the teaching of the Bible. Doesn't matter that your life changed. They're still attacking. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? 
people will challenge your conversion because they reject Jesus as the only way to heaven. And the Pharisees disputed this man's healing because they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah from God. Isaiah 47 says when the Messiah comes, he'll give sight to the blind. They know that. But they don't like the man who gave sight to the blind. In fact, they ask his parents to come and identify him. And to tell the source of his healing. Verse 20. They said, who is this? Is this your son and how was he born blind? In verse 20. You know this is, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. They really did. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now the next two verses tells you why they answered that way. They didn't want to answer in a way that would cause these religious leaders to think they believed in Jesus because they would be kicked out of the synagogue. His own parents. Because see, remember, Judaism was not only a religion, it was also an ethnicity. It was a, it was a, a race. So it was a race and a religion. So to be excluded from the synagogue was to be excommunicated from the culture. Not only from the church, but from the social life. It wasn't called a church, of course, but it was a synagogue. Do you remember when you were regenerated? Do you? Do you remember when the change descended on you? For some of us, family members want you to tone it down. Anybody hear anything like this? Tone it, tone it down. Don't be a, what's the word that they use? Holy roller. What else? A fanatic, would you say? I heard another one come from out there. Jesus freak, yeah. Don't be a Jesus freak, don't be a fanatic. Tone it down a little bit, don't be extreme. You need to, you need to fit in with some other people. Because they don't want you or themselves alienated from other people because of your beliefs. But at Luke 12, Jesus said his gospel would divide families. He didn't say he was deliberately trying to divide families. But what he says is where you fall on this issue of faith is going to be a wedge in the middle of a family. And this is especially true. And boy, don't we see it in our culture. In our culture, it's okay if you want to go to church. But you better not have any convictions. You better not accept the biblical view of morality. You better not take the Bible's view of, of who should get married and that sex shouldn't be before marriage. You better not have that view. That's intolerant. That's judgmental. That creates conflicts. Some people won't like it. Where are you going to stand? Where are you going to stand? See, these religious leaders refused to accept the truth that this miracle was performed because the inevitable conclusion of the miracle was that this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. And they were not going to go there. That's why they can't accept you really are in relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's amazing to me now, isn't it? That today, in our culture, 
if you say you're going to preserve sexual intimacy for marriage, you're looked at as an oddity. They want to know what's behind this. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. It's interesting to see all this dishonesty, isn't it? The parents were standing there when their son came back. The parents hoped he was actually could see. They watched Jesus put the mud on his eyes. They just weren't gonna, it was gonna cost them something. There were gonna be some repercussions. And now these religious leaders, they're just demanding this man who now can see and be blind his whole life not give credit to Jesus. And he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. You know anything about that? I was blind and now I can see. And they ridiculed him. Dropped down to 28. You're that man's disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he's from. They think he's from Nazareth. You understand, he grew, up in, he grew up in Nazareth. He's right now living in Capernaum. Capernaum and Nazareth are in the northern part of the country. They're in the region of Galilee, up near the Sea of Galilee. But they all know the prophecy that says the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Remember when King Herod wanted to find the newborn Jesus, he asked the religious leaders and they said, oh no, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And they didn't even go and check it out. But they knew. So they knew the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but they didn't ask Jesus where he was born. Here's what I've noticed. People who reject Jesus offer a lot of objections and ask no questions. In that way, they're sure to not unsettle their own ideas. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Verse 30. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from and he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man weren't from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Very sound statement, isn't it? And the Pharisees were so enraged by this statement that they started insulting this man personally. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out of the synagogue, of the religious community, of the people of God. See, these religious leaders had determined what the scripture meant. And they became an antagonistic when this man that some are saying is the Messiah who's performed this healing, when he doesn't fit their expectations. Even though they were presented actual, undeniable, irrefutable evidence of his identity. You know, today a lot of people have created their own version of the gospel or of the scriptures. And they reject what the Bible says about the way of salvation and the, the standards of obedience and, and what God says is morality and immorality. 
I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that our culture listens to the religious pontification of that Hollywood bunch. Who cares what those fools say? And they, they're... they're uninformed, idiotic opinions are emblazoned in the media all over the place. Why would you listen to that when you got God's Word right in your hand? See, these Pharisees and the the gospel they had compiled couldn't... See, the one they compiled led them to be the leaders in righteousness, see? It was self-serving. But they couldn't be saved or enter the kingdom of God through their gospel. But can you be saved through yours? It's interesting, isn't it, how there's there's this social gospel that requires no holiness, no righteousness, no obedience, and yet get you straight into heaven. And the people are mad when you challenge them on it. Isn't that right? Will your gospel open the gate to heaven? Receiving spiritual sight also results in worship. When Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out, he found him. Threw him out of the synagogue, remember. Well, why did Jesus have to go find him? Let me find somebody real smart here. Okay, Jennifer, why, why did Jesus have to go find him? Come on. All right, y'all help. (laughs) The man didn't know what he looked like. That's exactly the truth. See, I don't know why y'all keep falling for that. I ask y'all a question. Y'all think I want some old spiritualizing. The man couldn't see. He, he went to the, to the pool with mud on his eyes, but he was still blind. And when he, after he came up, Jesus was gone. He'd never seen him. He didn't know what he looked like. We don't know how to find God's Spirit either. So he finds you. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't say, I'll stand here on the corner so whoever wants to come to me, I'll be available. When a sheep is lost, how does the sheep get home? Sheep just gets wise enough to find his way back to the pen. Shepherd goes and seeks him. We're born spiritually blind. We're actually born indifferent to God. I mean, we might not be hostile to God in some shallow kind of way, you know, some sort of Christmassy way. But Jesus, when I'm saying Jesus, I really mean the Spirit of God in our day seeks us and enables us to see spiritually by His initiative, by His power, according to His grace. Can you see? It's a gift. It's a gift. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, we don't seek God. No man seeks after God. We seek after our own ways, is what that passage says. So Jesus found him, and he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, Son of Man means the Messiah. It was a title for the Messiah. And it's found in Daniel chapter 7. You see, this man needed to see physically. But how much more important was it to see spiritually? 
If I ask you right now, what's worrying you the most? I'm afraid for not many of us, it is the spiritual condition of our souls. But we sure are worried that our hair's falling out, we're turning gray, we're putting on a few pounds. I need a bigger house, I need a better car, I need a something, you know. This man would have died surely in poverty without being able to see physically. But his greater need was still to see spiritually. And that could only happen by faith. So he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? This man knew because he, he was Jewish. He had heard the teaching that the Messiah would give sight. Isaiah 42, 7. But he's not even sure that this man who gave him sight with the mud is the Messiah. But you know what he no, does know? He knows I trust whatever he says to me. Because nobody could give me sight. But he did. So you tell me. He trusted Jesus to identify who the Messiah was. So he could believe. And on the next page at verse 37, Jesus answered, You have both seen him and he is the one speaking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped. The Holy Spirit opened up his heart to the truth. He revealed, he confirmed Jesus' identity. You understand what I'm saying? He didn't just hear this as a man saying, I'm the one. He heard it spiritually. Because he not only was blind spiritually, he was also deaf spiritually. And he saw this Jesus not as a miraculous healer, which was as a human would understand. He saw this is the man from God. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the ruler of my life. And he worshiped. I believe this. I believe if the Holy Spirit enables you to have spiritual sight, you will be saved. Because you will believe. In fact, you're already in the process of believing. When, when you're shown truth, suddenly Christ is, not, is undeniable. And the inevitable result of revelation, such revelation about the identity of the Son of God, is always worship. Do you think I said sometimes it's worship? Always worship. Because in that instant, I'm not talking about going to church and all that. So I'm not even talking about going to Bible studies and reading books. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about a supernatural encounter by the Holy Spirit. So suddenly, you know God. You will worship. You can't help but worship. When, when the disciples who couldn't catch any fish, suddenly when Jesus said, put out the net again. And they pulled it in and it was full of fish. Peter didn't say, oh my, I'm going to make some money. He said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. He fell in worship. When you see the works of Christ and it shows you who he is, you will worship. Is worship evident in your life? That's a, that's a very clear evidence that you know the Savior. Is worship evident in your life? Or do you mean like singing songs? It includes that. 
Sometimes I'm troubled that we don't have more enthusiasm to verbalize our faith in song. What is it? What's holding back? I mean, have you seen the Savior? Because naturally you worship. It also means you spend time with him. You read his word. You, you care about what he has to say. You obey his word. But you do sing praises. And Sunday morning should be an expression of the worship that we have practiced during the week. I say this gently, but how much practice are you getting in? Folks, you got to see the Savior. I wish coming to hear Perry preach had value. It has no value if you don't see the Savior personally, supernaturally, individually. Receiving spiritual sight requires admitting blindness. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because we, we know from John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes him, not perish, have him. Christ came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He did come to save, not judge. But saving some would by definition condemn others. Whoever rejected Jesus' forgiveness would receive Jesus' judgment. There's no other place to stand. In fact, the judgment of God remains on you is what the scripture teaches us. In order that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. That's confusing, isn't it? Thank you. The others were embarrassed us. What, it, what this means is that those who acknowledge spiritual blindness will receive spiritual sight. In other words, if you can say, I know I'm blind, you only know it by revelation and you'll see. The light of the world will illuminate your eyes and your soul. But those who think, I see apart from Christ, delude themselves and will remain blind, imprisoned in darkness. Permanently. Eternally. Well, how do I know? Will you ask God, do I see? And here's a little indicator. If while I'm pushing on this, if it's making you kind of mad, how dare you ask me that? You better look there. You better look there. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? In other words, are you saying we're blind? Because the Greek expects a no answer in the way that the, the sentence is constructed. So they're arrogantly stating, surely you're not suggesting that we lack spiritual perception these men were the experts in the law of Moses. They viewed themselves as the most righteous people in the land. But in reality, they were spiritually blind. And by refusing to ask for illumination, refusing to admit their blindness, they confirmed the darkened conditions of their hearts and they rejected the only one who could truly give them sight. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. The fact that he's saying that you wouldn't have sin means that if you confess your spiritual blindness, you're admitting your need and you'll be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God faithfully and justly forgives our sins. The Pharisees were unwilling to admit it. And they were destined to spend eternity in darkness. So I plead with you. Can you see spiritually? He said, I don't even know 
You've got to ask God, show me, God, show me. If you admit your blindness, I am sure Jesus will give you sight. You know, all this preaching y'all are hearing, boy, there sure is a whole lot more of God in salvation than there is man. Are you hearing that? Well, then what do we do? See, we can't configure something. I, mean, I, could, I could give you a long emotional plea and get you all down here and maybe get you to cry, scare you about hell, something, but I can't convert you. That's the Spirit of God. So you have to speak to God and say, show me, I want to see you. Well, what's our part in it? We pray. You know, I haven't asked you to come every Sunday. I know it's too much for some of you, but I ask you to come on the first Sunday. Next Sunday is the first Sunday, 8.15. We ask God to intervene in people's lives. He's the primary mover. We are the responders. So I'm asking you to come. Well, where are you going to put all of us? Look at all these chairs. Historically, there has never been a revival that wasn't preceded by prolonged intensive prayer. If you think our country is in need of revival, I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to pray. This Memorial Day, remember the service men and women who've given their lives to preserve national freedoms. But let me urge you, even more than remembering them, honor them and their sacrifice by exercising your freedom of religion to believe, to worship, to express yourself biblically. We do it humbly. We do it motivated out of love. But we do it. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to remember your sacrifice that sets us eternally free. In Christ's name, amen. There'll be counselors here at the front. They'll be happy to pray with you, to talk with you about faith, or to anoint you with oil for healing. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.